Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to hear from people involved in the fascinating research into the feasibility of para-astronauts being done by teams working for the European Space Agency. I wanted to know what ESA's motivations were so I went along to their media conference just to note that the conference took place online and there were some technical difficulties. So my apologies for the slight audio interference here, but I think it's worth it to hear ESA's perspective. Here's ESA Director General Jan Warner. First of all, diversity is not a burden for us. Diversity is an asset for us. And we know that at ESA because since its creation in 1975, ESA had member states around Europe and I can tell you from my own experience that you see really different cultures from people from Northern and Southern Europe, from Eastern and Western Europe. So therefore, diversity for ESA is an asset already uh, looking to the nationalities. But of course, diversity is also something which we are looking now into a more broader sense, looking to gender, sexual orientation, ethnicity, beliefs, age and disabilities and other characteristics. So for us as an equal opportunity employer, um, it's really important to have diversity as it helps us to make things better. Um, and therefore, we would like at this time in the new in the new search, 2021-2022, uh, we would really particularly encourage women to apply uh, because uh, it's very interesting and, and supportive if we have mixed teams uh, with different people from different backgrounds, with different gender, etc., as I said. But we have even more exciting news. This time, for the first time in human history, ESA will be selecting persons with physical disabilities who will take part in ESA Parastronaut project. So we did a first trial some four years ago when we invited eight people with disabilities out of five European countries and made some parabolic flights with them. And this was a very nice experience and we believe it's time also to assess the feasibility of sending astronauts with physical disabilities into space. David Parker is ESA's Director of Human and Robotic Exploration. All of us see at ESA see diversity as not just an aspiration, but something we have to live in our everyday lives. And uh, we all witness people with various uh, disabilities, or let's say differently abled people, taking their place in society, in politics, on our TV screens. We've all marveled at the para-Olympians. So these are ordinary people that have overcome extraordinary challenges to succeed in life. We need people in ESA who can succeed. We already have people working at ESA who have uh, disabilities, and we need more of them to join us. But, um, uh, but visible representation is always important. And so therefore we've been asking ourselves, what are the barriers preventing us to fly a physically disabled astronaut to the ISS and to work there? So therefore, alongside the core astronaut selection project, we've assessed how to select a physically disabled individual to join the astronaut reserve in the first instance. And subsequently, we're going to investigate the technical and operational feasibility of implementing a meaningful and useful mission by such a person. Now, this possibility raises many, many questions, most of which we do not have answers for yet. Obviously, we don't have our own uh, crew vehicles to fly to the space station today in Europe. So obviously, we need to work with all of the ISS partners on this. And obviously, safety is a vital consideration. 
Nevertheless, we think that if we don't ask the questions, we will not find the answers. And this is the very essence of exploration. So we know that in presenting this idea today, there's a very fine line between raising expectations and the reality that it will take us time to find answers to all these questions. We need to work with experts in the field. Amaya, we need to work with the providers of the space transportation. And there's a very, uh, I mean, maybe also with technology companies, medical technology companies. And maybe by this, we'll open up new partnerships for our human research program and maybe have far-reaching uh, implications for our eventual lunar and Mars exploration. So we, have a, we feel we have a responsibility to at least try and make this happen and lead by example. So we hope to push the envelope uh, on the topic of disability at work and inspire people with special needs to apply to other roles in ESA and more widely in the, in the space industry. So let me be precise. We are looking for an individual who is psychologically, cognitively, technically and professionally qualified to be an astronaut, but has certain classes of physical limitation that would normally prevent them from being selected through the requirements we normally have. So right now we're at uh, step zero. The door is closed to such people. We want to change that and we want to go from zero to one. In late 2022, that one was announced as John McFall. John was born in the south of the UK in 1981. And at the age of 19, he suffered a motorbike accident that resulted in the amputation of his right leg. He was already a keen athlete by that point and has gone on to many successes, including the bronze medal in the 100 metres at the Beijing Paralympic Games in 2008 and the Paralympic World Champion in the 200 metres in 2007. John has also served as a foundation doctor in the British National Health Service. When it's announced they were looking for a candidate with a physical disability, and I looked at the person's specification and I thought, wow, this is, this is really aspirational. This is a very brave and very bold thing to do. Uh, and with my broad scientific background and vast range of experiences, I, I felt compelled to try and help ITSA uh, answer this question, can we get someone with a physical disability uh, to do meaningful work in space? I think that I can bring lots of things to the feasibility study, but I think in particular I can bring inspiration. You know, inspiration that science is for everyone, but inspiration that potentially space is for everyone. The European Space Agency have something called topical teams, projects funded by the Space Agency that support scientific research by creating forums based on a specific topic of interest to ESA and its future scientific direction. The topical team considering the feasibility of para-astronauts started its work on Friday the 1st of July. Invited to be part of it was Mike Miller-Smith. Mike is the CEO of Airability and I caught up with him earlier this month. Airability is a charity which exists to make aviation accessible to people with disabilities. So in its simplest sense, we do that practically. We uh, support all sorts of disabled people with literally every disability type of physical disability, perhaps a sensory impairment or a learning disability, even a mental health uh, problem, we will give somebody access. So we've got a number of light aircraft, which have been specially adapted with um, modifications to make them accessible. We have special equipment like the hoist that can lift, for example, a wheelchair user out of their wheelchair and into the pilot seat, literally. Um, so that's a really great physical way to introduce disabled people to the magic of flight, seeing the world from a new perspective and the challenges of learning to fly have a really transformative effect. 
through to the other end of what we do is really about advocating for disabled people in the world of aviation and aerospace. So to hopefully demonstrate to organisations like airlines, airports, manufacturers, um, more knowledge about disability. So the services they provide, the people that they employ are disabled. So hopefully having a bit of a society influence and benefit as well. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot on our plates, but really, in its simplest sense, it's about making uh, the sky accessible to disabled people for fun, for travel, and maybe even for a job. I've always had an interest in aviation since I was sort of early teenage years, really. Um, I, uh, by chance, came across aviation, lived relatively near an airfield, and sort of popped along on my bike to go and find out more. Uh, and they had a scheme to introduce young people to flying, a cadetship. And uh, so I learned to fly gliders when I was a teenager and quickly took to that, became a, a gliding instructor and uh, became part of the junior British gliding team and sort of got bitten by the bug. And when I went to university, I worked at the local flyer school at Cardiff Airport. I got paid in flying hours on, on a weekend. I did my private pilot's license. So... From that point forward, I just loved it. And Trey was training to become a a commercial pilot when, unfortunately, I started to become disabled. So uh, I have a a, a disability called muscular dystrophy, which effectively means that my muscles get weaker and weaker over time. So when I started to notice I wasn't as strong as I used to be, I uh, unfortunately had to change careers. But I've always stayed in, in aviation and now working for the charity, helping other disabled people to fly. The aircraft that we use are light aircraft. So they're certified light aircraft. So two-seaters, four-seaters, six-seaters, and um, adapted mainly with a hand control such that somebody with a lower limb disability can operate the rudder and the brakes with with their arm effectively rather than using their feet and legs. Can you tell me a bit more about that, seeing the world from another perspective? One of our mantras um, is that if I could fly, what else could I do? So I think disabled people don't always get the chance to do exciting things like fly an aeroplane. They don't get the chance to perhaps make choices or even to experience risk and make choices about risk. So the sky is a very good environment to do all of those things so you're almost doing something that's active going out on an airfield getting in and out of the airplane however you do that uh, learning about flight learning about technology the meteorology the airspace using the radio the, the systems on the airplane that stuff gets the brain working uh, and we find people who have even quite profound disabilities actually really really take to that but obviously, when you're up there, seeing the, the world from above the clouds, that's just a great place to be. And we often hear that people say to us, when I'm flying, I'm leaving my disability on the ground. My brain is only thinking about good stuff. It's concentrating on the flight, on the navigation, on that amazing view. And any pain or any other issues genuinely get left behind. So we often hear that the only true respite from disability happens in the sky. And as we've heard, the sky is no longer the limit. Because of our expertise over the last 30 years around supporting disabled people in a challenging environment, let's face it, aviation, uh, aeroplanes, 
it's it's somewhere where we've had to really work hard to think about accessibility, practicalities, safety, safety cases, adaptions to the aircraft. So, to um, there's a lot of carry throughs and, and similarities with the world of spaceflight, with with low Earth orbit in terms of you know accessibility, safety, and sort of strategizing uh, the medical side as well of what the challenges would be. So we've been working with a topical team with some academics uh, and those involved in the space industry to look at the accessibility of space and the challenges of disabled people working in space, I guess initially, and then the potential for space tourism and ultimately in the, in the real future, um, human beings going into space and going into planetary. We can't leave one fifth of the world's population behind people with disabilities, you know, we've got to work out practical ways that they can safely travel into space as well. So, um, yeah, we've been working with the European Space Agency funded project to to look at this and see what some of the practicalities might be. It's a real sort of privilege and really exciting to be uh, part of the future, genuinely being part of projects which are going to change humankind forever in the future. You know, we are going to do this. You know, I think anybody with any scientific interest shares that that belief that we're, we're, we're going to have to do this for, for so many reasons and to be part of effectively changing the DNA of the future of spaceflight, future, future of humankind, to make sure disabled people can do this uh, is, uh, is brilliant. How did it feel when you see the European Space Agency saying, right, we're putting out a call for para-astronauts? was exciting a year or two ago uh, and even more exciting a few a few weeks ago to see that John McFall has been announced as the first ESA you know, para-astronaut um, is it, really exciting obviously the fact that he's a Brit is great uh, and the fact that actually he lives locally to here and we've already reached out to John to maybe get him to uh, come and fly one of our aeroplanes and show him some of the, the technology we use so uh, we hope to, to meet John this year as well so um, but in the background, we've got these exciting projects looking at the physiology and the, the medical requirements and the technical and realities of spaceflight for disabled people. We'll hear from the lead scientist on this project later in the podcast, but I wanted to know how it's been from Mike's point of view. Uh, we, a new project started last year. This is the uh, uh, ESA-funded Power Astronaut topical team, if you like, with subject matter experts. So we've got academics... Uh, led by King's College, who are leading the project, academic institutions from around Europe, uh, ourselves as the sort of disabled community or representing the disabled community. Uh, And we had a workshop uh, last November, which was great to get face-to-face, really, and and talk through and strategize and uh, almost look at that sort of top level, what are the outcomes we're looking for. Uh, So that was a nice classroom session. But then the weather was nice, so we opened the hangar doors, got the airplanes out, and uh, these space scientists went flying with disabled pilots. So great that they could actually go up in the sky with a disabled pilot, see the adaptions that we use. I think more sort of how, how it all ties together. Would you go to space? I've, I've asked that question to myself a few times, and the answer is definitely yes. 
Yeah, surely there's there is a little bit of risk there. But you know, just to talk about risk briefly, I think it's important to mention that disabled people are very familiar with risk because sometimes we can't do things as quickly or as easily as able-bodied people. And the analogy I use is that I have an adapted car, which I drive myself, which has got a computer-controlled joystick steering system. I can literally control the whole vehicle with my fingertips. And I drive the vehicle from my wheelchair, and I have an electric uh, hydraulic ramp, which comes out the side of the vehicle, which is how I drive the wheelchair out of the, out of the vehicle. But let's say I was driving along the motorway and the vehicle had a problem, maybe caught fire. You know, I know it takes me a minimum of five minutes to get out of the the vehicle. But I make a choice, an informed decision to effectively, you know, my freedom and the very low risk of having that issue means that I make the choice to drive a vehicle and have an independent life. So um, going into space, I realise is, you know, not the safest thing you can do at the moment, at least but I make an informed choice that I'm going to do that. And I think the balance of seeing the the world with that unique perspective, and I'm a bit of a science geek as well, the fact that I could do some science experiments up there and make a contribution as well, hopefully, would be would be great. And, you know, I could almost be a guinea pig, couldn't I, with muscle weakness and breathing with a ventilator. You know, what would that be possible in space? And interestingly, given that all my muscles have gone already, and one of the big problems in space is muscle wasting and muscle loss. You know, maybe I wouldn't be impacted quite so much because I've got no muscle to waste. So, you know, so there'd be some interesting questions to answer, wouldn't there? Sounds like you're volunteering, Mike. Well, <laughs> I don't know what my other half would say. <laughs> Currently, astronauts, people going to space, with the exception of a couple of people who've paid to do it, and even they've had to go through quite a lot of training. Are you thinking about it from that side as well? Yeah, so I think there needs to be a paradigm shift in terms of thinking. And clearly ESA are doing that, and I know NASA are as well, um, that the sort of test pilot levels of fitness, the you know PhD level of education, what we tended to see in the astronaut cadre communities of the world are changing. Because if space is truly going to become accessible, it needs to represent the spectrum of ability and physical capability uh, within the wider population. So I think, you know, again, learning to fly is a good analogy. Over the last 20 or 5, 30 years, the disabled community has worked with aviation regulators to find safe ways to train disabled people, to allow them to become licensed pilots, even, you know, to travel on an airliner as a passenger. Although that's still fraught with some difficulty, it is slowly improving in terms of technology used, aircraft design, but also attitudes and training of those providing that service. So the space industry will need to reflect that. So it will need to become uh, more capable of thinking outside the box to try new things, to look at new ways of managing risk to adapt environments, to adapt training techniques and adapt the way individuals are assessed to to go into space. So I think it needs to be sort of all of the above to make it possible. You've talked about this change in perspective from seeing the the world from above the clouds. Obviously, the, the ultimate of that is the overview effect, this 
view that astronauts get, people who go into space get the view of the blue marble. Is is that what draws you to want to go to space? Is it to look back at Earth? You know, when you see interviews with astronauts, you see them talking about their experience, you can see the profound effect it's had on them as human beings. Quite often now, particularly with the concerns around climate change and some of the sad political issues and wars and conflict we're seeing around the world, you know, they all re- they are all very resolute in saying when you've seen the world from that perspective, you can see it's one ecosystem. Ultimately, it's one mankind. It's, it's it, the, the planet we've got to look after and you don't see those political boundaries. And I think... To experience that clearly, that would be an amazing viewpoint to have and to be part of, of of change. Again, I know a lot of astronauts do try and get involved in some of that change and being part of influencing the future and hopefully removing some of the issues that we face. And I think, yeah, that, that would be the same for me. Clearly, the view is amazing. Clearly, everyone would look out, to the, look out the window all day. But to actually get that perspective and then use that for good afterwards would be a a real privilege. We'll hear from Mike again later, but this topical team is a research group that spans Europe. And here's the leader of that research. My name is Irene Di Giulio. I'm a lecturer at King's College London. I'm lecturing in anatomy and biomechanics. Um, But today I'm here, I guess, to talk about our space research. It's quite varied, but... um, We've been uh, given uh, funding and support from the European Space Agency um, for our topical team on the para-astronaut project. We try to understand the physiological um, challenges, but also advantages of a a para-astronaut in a space mission. And recently we've been awarded a UK Space Agency uh, grant uh, to create a community of people who want to engage with us uh, to make this uh, mission successful, especially consider that ESA uh, has recruited the first para-astronaut and he's British. How does that come about with, with ESA? Do, you, so do, do they put it out there that they want some a research team to do this and you apply for it? Or? So I've been trying for years so, to get funding for this project. I guess I was... I was not with the, at the right time, so I, I submitted this to several places for years. What happened is in 2021, European Space Agency uh, called for new astronauts. And in that call, they also include a call for para-astronauts to be involved with the feasibility project, they call it, para-astronaut feasibility project. When that came up, uh, was announced in 2021, I thought maybe this is the time. So topical teams are um, always always open with ESA. So um, they have three main themes, and, and the one we are in- interested in is the health science, anyway. And essentially, uh, they provide you, you submit an application. They will provide funding for up to two years for experts to essentially uh, provide opinions or go through the literature on a particular topic and therefore then come up with recommendation and reports and things to do next in this particular area. And I guess um, uh, they needed somebody for this, uh, and that's why we were successful with that. So so you've been thinking about this for a while then. Why were you thinking about it? Because I... So to me, uh, the, the disability experience by somebody 
is has two elements. One is the physical impairment, if we're thinking about physical disability. One is the impairment per se. But the other thing is the interaction with the environment. So if you think about the stupid example, maybe, but if you think about um, somebody in a wheelchair getting off and on and off a curb, uh, the, the disability experience is higher if there is no um, slide sort of thing or there is no... Um, so if the interaction with the environment essentially becomes a barrier. And I think that when we think about different environment and different interaction with environments, space is a huge different interaction, different environment. And I believe that then the disability experience could be a lot lower if not becoming even an advantage in some cases with specific disabilities. So from a scientific point of view, I thought, well, we need to try to, what we know about our physiology, the human physiology is based on Earth and it's a beautiful planet, um, but has its own constraints. And what happens in space when there is reduced gravity, when um, you know there are other conditions that we don't know much about or whatever we know about is based on able people with, uh, without a disability and tends to be very fit um, traditionally. Um, so we don't know the uh, adaptations and the changes in the broader population. So that's where I come from. Is space an interest for you generally? And I was a postdoc in a previous job. I was involved with some space research. Um, uh, we were looking at the um, muscle uh, wasting after six months on the uh, International Space Station. So I was lucky enough uh, to be in the right place at the right time at the time. Um, and I, we collected data before and after um, uh, six months on space mission on a few a few astronauts, and that obviously being an engineer, I start thinking, oh, uh, there are quite a lot of things happening in space uh, to the human body. Um, so it's always been in the back of my mind. And when I joined Kings, uh, I found out there is a strong tradition at Kings about aerospace research, and I th- I was again, the right place at the right time uh, to develop this type of research. My main research is biomechanics and understanding how the brain controls movement. Uh, but um, yeah, I always think that our understanding uh, of the physiology is limited because we test or we um, essentially study the same type of individuals. So I'm trying to broaden the horizon in that because I, it's not just because it's the right thing to do people think the white savior approach which is not what i'm trying to do here i also believe that we have a limited understanding of human physiology because of the limited population that we are testing so tell me about uh, the moment when isa say yes what 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 do you do next oh i was like oh finally <laughs> <laughs> it's because you try so many times and everybody says oh it's very good but not for us or no it doesn't you know most funders said it it affects a very small uh, population which i think it's true now but with um, you know commercial space flight this may change soon actually anyway what happens after isa said yes well um it's exciting because we have a strong team uh, we have uh, people from academia, but as you met uh, uh, Mike from Airability, we also I also try to engage with other charities uh, with slightly less success, but we have a strong team. 
Um, and uh, it's a complete blank canvas. Nobody's done anything like that. And when you think about this particular project is about also looking what's already published, there is nothing published in this area. So we go into aerobility because of their experience with um, aviation, which is a close, close enough um, war. We also go in my, some of my research or at least the interest is on um, para-athletes. So we're going also there to try to understand whether some of the adaptation and some of the changes studied in para-athletes uh, can be then transferred to para-astronauts. So it's, it's a blank canvas and we are learning on the go. And also the other thing is, well, for an um, ivory tower researcher, you start thinking it's not published, but it's not, it's out there. So like um, the adaptation, the ability are um, designed for their own um, purposes. They are out there, obviously, they are patented and everything, but obviously from an academic perspective, you may not be aware of them. But it's it's good to not just look at and read papers, and but it's also going out and getting uh, our feet a bit, you know, on the ground on these sort of things. So it's quite exciting. You started in July last year. Mm-hmm. What are you finding? What What's coming out of the research you're doing? What we're finding are two main things, in my opinion that we need, and that's why we got the UK Space Agency grant now, we need to engage with the community. We feel, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, people with disability have not been involved so much in this conversation. So there is quite a lot we can learn uh, from experiences. And it's very limited if we just think with our own preconceived ideas. Because the other, when we had a meeting, for example, we had a few meetings with um, the team and we are writing now a paper about the, the, uh, the aerobility experience. Um, because sometimes uh, there are preconceived or prejudgments and say, oh, this is not possible or um, we, this should not be possible. And then solutions are already used in the field. So, and also the other thing that I learned uh, in our last meeting was we need, that engagement is important um, with different communities because we know very little. And um, and there is no better thing than ask uh, rather than assuming um, an, an answer, uh, whether it's in one way or another, but, you know, just ask. I'm particularly interested in the advantages of parastrolls are there definitely advantages or you're hoping there are advantages what and what are they i have a theory so there are main barriers to human space flights uh, some of them include so there, there are uh, barriers that probably are the same for astronauts and para-astronauts like you know radiation exposure and dust and that sort of thing however uh, there are some uh, human barriers. So, for example, there is fluid shifts because so th- those more related to gravity are fluid shifts. So essentially uh, fluids that uh, with uh, gravity pulls down from the head to the feet, sort of on, on Earth, in uh, uh, microgravity is not pulled down. So uh, astronauts tend to experience what's called um, puffy face in chicken legs. So fluids tend to go... Uh, in the head, which can increase intracranial pressure and that sort of thing. So there is that. Uh, there is also astronauts uh, have muscle and bone wasting, and that's why they are uh, exposed or they are 
requested to do to, uh, exercise for up to two hours a day to minimize muscle wasting and bone loss. And there are other uh, things. And I, my hypothesis is on, uh, some disabilities, and in particular, uh, double leg amputation, could be an advantage in microgravity. The advantage are, is because the fluid shift will be minimized. And also, the, if para astronauts dedicate the same amount of time, for example, to training that other astronauts do, they can um, focus on the upper body and therefore um, the effects. So they train more the upper body for the same amount of time. So the effects on bus, muscle and bone wasting could be lower. And also, very in, for example, if you think about videos from the International Space Station, astronauts don't use their lower limb, they don't use their legs. They push themselves from the capsule. Um, so in one could argue that lower limbs are not needed. So that's my underlying hypothesis. I'm up, so oh, every hypothesis can be wrong. I'm not saying that this is, but that's where I'm coming from. Do you have to go to space? Do you have to take para astronauts to space to do that research? So we will need microgravity. And because research is full of uh, failures, not only successes, we tried to do microgravity research with ESA and that wasn't successful yet. Uh, at least hasn't been successful yet. But um, we, space will be the, uh, the exposure to the duration. It's, it cannot be replicated in other um, um, scenarios. So need maybe is a strong word, but if we really want to prove the point, I guess um, that would be the ultimate proof. But yeah, we are trying to do other things um, uh, in the meantime. When you say it hasn't worked, you mean you haven't managed to do it or when you did it, it didn't work for some reason? No, we didn't get funded. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> okay. So, well, people are listening to this, then, you know, that's that's up to them to fund it, right? That's... That would be lovely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what would that what would that research look like in microgravity here? How do you do that on Earth? So there is the parabolic flight, uh, which is what we try to do. And essentially is um, uh, there are flights uh, from ESA or other organizations. Um, the experiments is performed within an airplane um, and the, uh, the plane flies through parabolas. And in some phases of the parabolas, the, uh, it's like when you um, take off or land on a normal plane, but exaggerated. So on some phases of the parabolas, um, people in the, in, on the plane can experience uh, about up to 20 seconds of reduced gravity or microgravity. It depends on the parabola. And so essentially, uh, there are, within a flight, there are about there are ten to fifteen, up to thirty um, periods of microgravity in which you can test the effect of microgravity on, for example, human body, but also other um, non-human applications. So that's what we were trying to do, for example. There is also a company in the U.S. that uh, have. Um, essentially uh, promote uh, parabolic flight experience for people with disabilities. Would you link up with them for the research? I've been trying very hard. <laughs> don't know why it's not happening, but I've been trying very hard. Yeah. Okay. 
Clearly, research plans and applications for money don't always go smoothly. In fact, we'll explore that a little more in next month's podcast. But there are hopes to take this research in some other directions. We're trying to uh, involve astronauts. Um, I don't know if you know how this works, but you need to go through ESA, so the European Space Agency, and that may uh, uh, needs a bit more of a few more steps to get that involved. But yes, we do need because that's another good question. Another question that we are trying to assess is how our other crewmates um, feel and will work with para-astronauts. We don't want to create that divide, but traditionally that divide has been there. So that is also another important thing, because, for example, if we think about ISS, uh, six members of the crew, we also need to think about the other five. If we have one para-astronaut, we need to think about the other five. And they are different nationalities. They are not all ESA astronauts. We also have uh, astronauts from other countries and other agencies. So it needs to be... Um, it, 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 it's a small environment and things need to be considered um, for a successful mission. You mean there's, there might be cultural differences? Cultural differences or maybe... So going back to what we said earlier about asking people and including people, there might be a preconceived idea that somebody with a disability cannot perform a task or cannot perform a task as quickly or as well. And we need to address and to understand whether that idea is there and try to understand how we can um, we can make the mission successful and how we can change if there is some uh, unconscious and slightly maybe um, unfunded bias. If you got all of this research to land and it all happened, how long would that take? Well, uh, at the moment, I think it is a call a feasibility project because they have not guaranteed a flight. We are trying to make it happen. So that's why our team is very keen to give as much support to the agency and try to make that happen and not just um, and think about solutions rather than just problems. Um, and as I said earlier on, my hypothesis being an advantage. When I discussed this with ESA, they didn't... They, they didn't be, not believe, but they weren't even considering possible advantages. So obviously, it's it's understandable that people think of the problems, and think of the things that cannot be done. But I think we should start to change thinking. In terms of the timing, in this space, uh, things tend to change quite a lot. But I think they are thinking about a three-year time window. I don't know whether that is reasonable, but um, I think that was the discussion, but I'm not sure. Next steps, uh, we have now this UK space agency funding to get this community of experts and people with disability working together. Uh, we are doing, uh, we are trying to uh, get some more research on Earth uh, about our possible solutions. So, yeah, the thing is not to complain, but it's not a lot of money and research costs a lot of money, <laughs> um, especially in terms of time. So um, we're doing maybe smaller steps than I wanted uh, in this direction, but it's it's because of the limited resources. Uh, would you go though? Would you like, if, if you were offered the opportunity to go on like the Vomit Comet or even into space, would you do it? 
depends on the duration. So when I was uh, doing this experiment I mentioned earlier, uh, when we were in NASA uh, testing astronauts after six months on the International Space Station, and I must admit, when you when you see the conditions, um, it, it's a big toll on your body. Uh, so for six months to me is too long. Um, Maybe, you know, in this uh, shuttle here, when they were thinking about the two weeks or that sort of length, uh, that's okay. It's also consideration that now we are learning something more about the uh, female physiology in space, which we knew very little <laughs> for, the long, for a very long time. Uh, so in the last few years, we are learning something about that, um, but we don't have a lot of information yet. Um, with obviously the n so the sample size is still very limited yes isn't it that could change couldn't it the work is done in that area uh to change it and uh, it's great that work is being done um so now is the time to, to not waste the opportunity i think that's the problem um yeah research in, in space is, uh, in space exploration tends to be quite difficult quite a lot of red tape and um, and some people get discouraged and as I said it's very normal uh, to get discouraged and I'm not saying I'm not I'm just saying <laughs> now I can do this bit let's see what happens next. Mike Miller-Smith is keen to ensure that the research is shared in both directions. Airability is really excited and hopeful that we can be a gateway to the, the wider disabled community to engage with the space industry. So that's why we'll be hoping to do some work with para-athletes and with other uh, people with disabilities of all different types to start asking questions about would they be interested in going into space? What challenges do you think they might face? And as we start to find out more and more data and knowledge about this, then we can start to replay that back into the disabled community. So we start the dialogue. I think that's really important. So, uh, yeah, it's great to be that gateway to between the two society groups, really. And the science is fascinating, some of the stuff, in terms of G-tolerance. So particularly during re-entry when the gene levels are at the highest. Again, uh, if the blood is uh, able to stay where it should do in the core, then uh, G-tolerance improves for amputees in particular. So... This is some of the research that's going to be done in centrifuges and other uh, experiments just to find out what the physiological benefits are for disabled people potentially in space. Uh, that leads me to another question. You practically volunteered to go into space. Are you going to volunteer to go in a centrifuge? Well, I'd love to. I think the trouble is with my, you know, I'm six foot four, I'm a big guy. Hoisting me into an airplane is bad enough. Hoisting me into a <laughs> centrifuge, that would be another challenge. But hey, these are some of the t things we need to tackle. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You would actually love to do it, though, genuinely. Oh, yeah, well, when I was uh, more able than I am now, I used to love doing aerobatics. So I thought nothing of uh, flying an aerobatic, an aerobatic biplane, you know, pulling five or six G, minus two or three G. I used to love that on a sunny Saturday afternoon. So, yeah, I'm a bit of a G junkie, so I'd love to love to get back to do that in a centrifuge okay fair enough what about taking the g's away though would you take a trip on the vomit comet absolutely and in fact you know it's stephen hawking's done it so it's good enough for him as a disabled person and it's 
good enough for every other disabled person. So I'd very much love to do that. Well, I for one certainly hope that Mike gets his wish and goes on the Vomit Comet and maybe even into space one day. And I also hope that that topical team manages to get the funding that they need to continue with this fascinating research. As I say, we'll be back next month when we'll be exploring when research and PhDs go wrong. But until then, you can keep up with what's going on in the world of physics with the Physics World Weekly Podcast, which you can find on the Physics World website, physicsworld.com. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.